0: Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up, we will get an update on what is happening with those devastating fires in Hawaii. We are starting the show, though, with an alarming story about a Vancouver woman who went to VGH seeking help for suicidal thoughts. And she is telling her story about what happened as a warning to others and as a plea for things to change. Joining me on the line now is Catherine Mentler. Catherine, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you for having me. You went to Vancouver General Hospital and you were seeking psychiatric help. Can you tell us how things unfolded when you got to the hospital and asked for that help? Um, So I actually went to the Access and Assessment
1: Center, which is like connected to Vancouver General Hospital. And I was told before, so I had like a traumatic event that happened to me um, at the beginning of the year, at the end of January, and people kind of told me that if I needed um, follow-up or if I needed like help in like a mental health crisis, um, that I could go to the Access and Assessment Center because it's a bit more quiet than the emergency room, and there's like clinicians can assess you, and you can kind of like go from there. Um, so the way it works is you arrive and you like fill out this form with kind of like what's going on, and then a clinician takes you into a room kind of for an assessment. Um, and the clinician would then decide if they can, like, help you with any, like, follow-up plan or call, like, an on-call psychiatrist um, or what what happens after, kind of. Um, personally, I was in a pretty um, distressed state that day um, because something had come up from that traumatic event. And, um, yeah, so I just, like, I lived by myself. I, I didn't feel that I had... Um, any supports and that I could keep myself safe. So that's why I went there. And I was actually prepared to like possibly be admitted to the hospital to stay for a couple of days to maybe like, just um, you know, get back to like a, a place where I feel like safe by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we went into the room with the clinician and actually it was like a really friendly conversation. And so I really felt like opening up, um, and I talked about what happened. I also talked about that throughout my life. I've, like, had um, episodes of, the, of depression, episodes of anxiety, um, episodes of self-harm, um, as well as, like, suicide attempts in the past. And um, I kind of said that um, sometimes I feel, like, hopeless, that I will never feel better or that I will never feel different. It was kind of like a vulnerable moment of sharing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And after that, um, the clinician like out of nowhere asked me if I had considered MAID. And it even took me some time to like understand what she had actually like asked me right there. Then she also told me the story about um, a patient um, that she had um, seen years ago that had concurrent like mental health disorders and um, physical symptoms and whose life sounded like it was challenging and that person um, had drowned in a river. However, there was never a mention that this person wanted to die, that this person had attempted um, suicide, that this person had a wish um, for assisted dying or dying at all or if what happened was an accident or something else. And, uh, the clinician concluded the story by saying that while this is sad, this was also like a relief that this person mm-hmm. passed away. And I found the story really disturbing. Um, I think because I was in a crisis myself, it kind of like, I didn't have, um, the energy at the moment to really properly react, but I like inside myself, I was like, very distraught just from, like, an ethical and moral standpoint that someone else would make, like, a judgment about another person's life and whether that life is, like, worth living or not, like, no matter if the person struggles or not. Like, yeah, I think that's just very um, questionable. And then um, we also talked about the times that I tried um, or attempted suicide and um, which for me was, like, overdosing on medication. Um, And one time I actually ended up um, waking up in the ICU at Vancouver General Hospital, and I was actually very moved at the time um, about all the doctors that, like, helped save my life that night. Um, But so the clinician said that um, obviously it's very, like, traumatic, um, to go through that as well, like through like an overdose and, you know, you could get brain damage, you could get like other things. And um, then she kind of went into explaining how MAID works and that with MAID, you get a really high dose of like benzodiazepines, so you like don't even know what's going on when you have the lethal injection. And so um, kind of expressing that That would be um, a more um, relaxing or peaceful way to go. Um, And at that point, I just really wanted to get out of the room. Um, And we had a bit more of, like, small talk. Um, The other thing that I kind of didn't mention in the beginning is that, like, she did tell me in the beginning that um, if, I wanted he could call like an on-call psychiatrist, but that there's no beds because the system is so overwhelmed and broken. And that was also pretty disheartening to hear when you're like reaching out for help. And she said that, so there's like a holding room, it's called Pete's at um, Vancouver General Hospital. And she said, well, if I call the on-call psychiatrist then they certify you, then you're just going to be stuck in this room because there's no beds. And as of right now, you could be stuck there for like up to a week just in this room and you're not allowed to leave. And like, it's just like a very small room. Hmm. And so I was like, I don't think that would be helpful necessarily in my situation. Um, But yeah, then we got into the whole conversation around maid and like, I think the important thing to mention is that I never brought it up myself. I just said that I feel hopeless because I live with, like, chronic illness and chronic pain, as well as, like, the mental health struggles, as well as this traumatic event, and everything was just, like, a lot right now, and I felt I didn't have, or I felt I needed support. Like, that's basically why I got there.
0: Right. And so you, Um, sorry, you you were going there because you identified, given... Your past and and what you had done in the past, you identified that you were in a pretty vulnerable spot, and you were going there looking for help.
1: Yes, um and I did have um, like suicidal thoughts and a plan that day um, but i I didn't want to um, follow through like I wanted to look for help um, and that's that's why I went there. And then, yeah, and then it was a combination of there is no help, but also, like, have you considered this option that I know is not, not even, like, legal yet, but I feel like it just, like, it felt to me that it made, like, a judgment about me and my condition in the sense of, like, well, maybe you will never get better. Maybe, like, this would be an option for you. Um and and that was really disturbing that someone, like, I feel like that my life should matter no matter what. And I think that any person living with, like, mental illness or disability, that their life matters. And that if a person doesn't bring up made by themselves, it shouldn't be part of that conversation at all, I think.
0: Continuing now with Catherine Mentler about her experience going to Vancouver General Hospital. Catherine, you mentioned that MAID isn't currently legal when we're talking about mental illness alone. It is being studied right now. In a statement to Vancouver Coastal Health suggested the reason you were asked about it was perhaps the clinician gauging if you were suicidal in that moment. But I get the impression that's not how you interpreted it.
1: No, to be honest, not at all. I was really surprised when I heard that um, response from uh, Vancouver Coastal Health. And I don't think that it is, like, a common tool that is used. Like, I know the tools that are used to kind of, like, gauge someone's um, risk for suicide. And it does involve asking, like, have you considered suicide? Like, how would you do it? When would you do it? Um, Because you kind of want to see how far along the person is. But I I never mentioned maid. I said that I had I, I had suicidal thoughts, that I didn't have like a concrete plan at the time. I also talked about the past and how I had um, tried to commit suicide in the past. But MAID just came came out of nowhere. Like I hadn't asked about maid. I hadn't inquired about maid. I hadn't thought about MAID myself. And I do think there is a difference because I came talking about like myself but then I feel like the agency from MAID is kind of like like for one there's kind of like a power differential between me and an institution and you know how MAID would would take place. Um and I and and I think, just like in combination with like the story and with like also telling me how like in in specific details, like the medications that would be used for made, that was very disturbing for me and I just left feeling that that this person kind of like made made a judgment about me and my life and and whether it's worth living, and that's that's what's been haunting me afterwards. And they also mentioned, like, oh, yeah, I talk with a lot of people that come here about MAID. But then I feel like that, like, opens up the question. So this is a place where a lot of people come that are, like, having either, like, suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts or in are in some kind of, like, mental health crisis. And it's like, should you be talking to these people about MAIDs? which for one, isn't even legal, and two, I think that even in the cases where it is legal right now, it can only be brought up by the patient if they are considering it. And in general, um, I have had many suicide assessments, but people don't usually go with me over possibilities to die. Um, it's more about like giving the person hope um, and finding like ways to support the person.
0: Right. How, how did you leave things then, as far as, again, you went there for help, for that support, hoping to, to deal with what you were feeling and, and some pretty dark thoughts that you were having at that time. How did you leave things, as far as, did you end up getting the help that you needed?
1: Um, no, because I didn't, um, I guess since they already told me that there is no beds, and there's no availability, Um, I think already back then, part of me was like, okay, I don't think I'm going to get help there today. Um, What they offered is like that they can give me a phone call the next day. Um, But I think after the conversation took that turn with Maid, I just like started to kind of like panic, and I just wanted to get out of like that room with that person. So there was a bit of small talk, and I left. Um, and I just like went home and slept. And then the next day I remember waking up and just feeling like screaming and crying because, um, I, I just felt like I, I asked for help about suicide and someone like in detail explained to me how, um, you know, medical, how I could go through like, medically assisted dying and I went there to live and and I think that's also the thing I've been reading some of like the comments from like the news stories that came out and I don't know if people who like don't have depression like don't understand that depression is also a thing that like comes and goes like it's like you go through phases of depression but it doesn't mean you don't have joy and you don't have those other things in your life and so Recognizing that, I recognized I was in a crisis right now and I needed help, but I, I did not intend to like end my life or, or think about um, ending my life in, in that way. And I think that even if I struggle with chronic depression or chronic suicidality in my life, that my life is still has, has worth and value.
0: Well, absolutely. And, and Catherine, the fact that you're able to share your story, I think, is going to help others as well and certainly lead to more questions about this and what happens when somebody goes and seeks out help from a medical setting or at a medical setting like this. Um, we can leave it there for today unless, Catherine, there's anything else that you wanted to share about this experience. I think the other thing that I would
1: say that I was disappointed about is I filed a complaint with the patient quality care office of Vancouver General Hospital, mm-hmm. just because I think it's important to have conversations about this and for them to have conversations with staff about this. Um, however, they told me that I wouldn't be able to hear back from them. It also took them much longer. I did at the same time also call the BC um Canadian Mental Health Association, and someone from there actually called me back the next day and um, I talked with like two people from there and I think it made a big difference that they called me and listened to me and like encouraged me, um, which is what I didn't receive from Vancouver Coastal Health or Vancouver General Hospital because often if something really up and it was actually traumatic i like I went for help and I feel like I was further traumatized. What happens after, I think it makes a big difference if there's a person that reaches out to you and like validates what, what you're saying and what you're
0: experiencing. And so I'm really grateful for the Canadian Mental Health Association for doing that. Um. Well, taking a look now at the Hollywood writers' strike. It marked 100 days yesterday. Contract talks have stalled. Those on the picket lines protesting what they say is a complete disregard for their demands. If you've been following along, that strike began on May 2nd after negotiations between the Writers Guild of America and the major studios reached an impasse over issues including compensation, minimum staffing of writers' rooms, residual payments in the streaming area, and the other issues as well. Just before we get to my next guest, take a listen to a comment. This is from Al Muro, who is a local actor speaking to Global News about the impact. It's been tough. You know, it's been tough for the actors, the writers, and I think everybody uh, in the industry. Uh, A lot of people are being affected by this. Um, A lot of people that work on the crew, um, agents, casting directors, makeup artists, you know, even people that make props and catering. So it's been really kind of heartbreaking to see uh, to see it having to go on for so long you know it it used to be that we'd audition I would say like an average of four times a week at least Uh, and now you know you go like weeks and weeks without any auditions at all maybe some commercials there's still some work that we can do like commercials voiceover um, Canadian shows Uh, but most of the work comes from the states and so a lot of the shows that would be filming now that would keep us busy or just not here and so we barely have any auditions at the moment. That was actor Al Muro. Joining me now is Amy Lang, president of North Shore and Mammoth Studios. Amy, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, We talked to you when this first started and we were trying to figure out what the impacts were going to look like. What are your thoughts on what we just heard from uh, actor Al Moreau and uh, your thoughts on this now being 100 days?
2: Yeah, certainly we didn't uh, expect or hope that it would go on to be a 100-day strike and we're now at 101 um, but there is positive news in that they AMPTP just re- announced that they are actually headed back to the negotiations table tomorrow.
0: Well, that is positive news. So does, does that give you some hope that there, there might be some common ground enough that they've at least agreed to start talking again?
2: Yeah, it absolutely gives hope. I mean uh, I guess there's no movement when they're not talking and so it's great to have them back at the table because I think there was concerns that it may not, Uh, get to this point until maybe towards the end of August. And as Al said, everybody wants to get back to work and and
0: everybody is feeling the impact of this, certainly. What has it been like for you uh, this 101 days?
2: Well, I think back in May, we said, you know, this will have a different impact depending on where productions were at and the longer it goes on, uh, the more it will be felt. And certainly from... You know, local cast and crew to vendors and the, the ecosystem at large in the film and television industry now feels it because productions are basically at a halt and we have 90% of our um, those employed in the industry out of work right now.
0: Was there talk early on or or even more recently of of some kind of workaround in bringing some of the work to Canada and and that there could be an exemption or that some of that work might have shifted during the writer's strike? Well, I don't think there's
2: necessarily an exemption, but there was some waivers that were granted and there's, you know, that hasn't really been to a volume where that will really affect um, the impact of, or lessen the impact. So I think in general, no, there's not really a workaround. We're all just trying to make sure that they come to you know, a resolution as soon as possible and so that we can everybody can get back to work.
0: And if there is a resolution, and again, that's positive news that talks are going to resume, how long do you think will it take to get things back up and running and to, to kind of move forward from this?
2: Oh, well, that will also depend, again, on where productions are at in their life cycle. So those who have had to... I know, quote-unquote, pen down and, and are, you know, stages are locked up, they can get back to work, the, you know, within the next couple of days. Those the uh, productions that are slated to come here in the fall may get pushed out a few more months, which, you know, hopeful that's not, but it, it really just depends on where the production's at in their cycle.
0: And we're talking about the 101 days of the writer's strike. We know that there were also actors with the Screen Actors Guild that went on strike in July. Uh, Some of the same issues there as well. Uh, What about the impacts of that as well, in addition to the ongoing writer's strike? Well, I mean, the dual
2: strike certainly is what really is is uh, forcing productions to put their you know cameras down because that without the actors, they can't proceed. So certain shows that were potentially written could have, could have seen through their, their shoot cycle, but, you know, without having the actors that makes, that's obviously, a, you know, no go and they have to pause until this gets, comes to resolution. Both sides of them, of the, of both unions have, you know, complex issues. And so I know they're working really hard to make sure that they get what they need and, you know, that, both sides of the table
0: um, find a common ground. What has it been like? I, I know you touched on this, uh, but but the fact of, I guess, work that was already kind of underway uh, with things grinding to a halt. So, what what do people in your position do? Well, in my position, we certainly
2: have to we you know kind of button down some of the costs that you can, and you you know productions are still there, and some are. Paying what they can to keep the lights on, I guess you could say, and some are necessarily not able to continue to do that. So it really just depends on um, what production you're dealing with, what facilities you might have, and and where again, where they're at in their production cycle.
0: Right, because uh, keeping the lights on, I would imagine, and keeping people employed when these strikes are bringing things to a halt, that's got to be expensive.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, and this is on, on all fronts, not just, you know, facilities, but, you know, all the vendors, the small businesses. I mean, I think it's not necessarily a well-known that the film and television industry is a huge supporter of small businesses. And, and, you know, when something like this happens for 100 days, this prolonged, you know, beat on, on their income is will affect them. Absolutely. So it's really important that when we get back to work, we get these small businesses back up into our ecosystem so that we can... Continue to have them there at the end
0: of this. And when you talk about the small businesses that are impacted by this, what, what kinds of businesses are feeling this the most?
2: Well, certainly suppliers. Um, there's there's catering, there's food vendoring, there's costumes, there's um, recycling industry, and you know, you name it. It, it touches a whole
0: um, broad spectrum of small businesses. So it, it's
2: uh, it's certainly something we want to
0: keep an eye on. Uh, you're right. That is something uh, too that you don't think about. Kind of that ripple effects on how many different different businesses are impacted. Uh, do we also tend to downplay or maybe just not not be aware of of how big of an industry it is in Vancouver, in BC, and and how much we do depend on those dollars coming in for, for all those different parts of it here in Canada?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's a Definitely an underestimated uh, industry in DC, and so for example, it's eighty thousand um, employees in DC, and that I believe is larger than fishing, mining, forestry combined. So it is absolutely a very large industry, and so the longer this goes on, the the more this will be felt.
0: And d- I mean, depending on on what is going to be agreed to. At some point, there, need, there will need to be an agreement. This can't go on forever. But again, some of the issues that I, I mentioned, and we, and we talked about this before, as far as compensation, mm-hmm. staffing in writer's rooms, residual payments, so when we're talking about streaming. Uh, do you think that, that depending on what the, the, the agreement is, when the two sides figure out uh, an agreement there, will it change the industry? No, I I think the industry is changing on all other fronts, not
2: necessarily driven by these two uh, labor issues. So it's, you know, Hollywood's gone through a huge disruption. And so they are certainly still trying to figure that out. And and that's, you know, still to be seen. And so it's a a bit of two sides. It's it's definitely a labor movement, but it's also definitely the industry itself is going through incredible um, change and restructuring and You know, transitioning from linear television to streaming and what does that look like for, you know, legacy studios versus streaming studios, it's very different. So I don't think necessarily that, like I said, the labor issues will change the industry, but the industry is changing on its own.
0: Well, Amy, like you said, it's some promising news that talks are at least going to start up again, and both sides have agreed to do that. Thank you so much for joining us, and hopefully next time we talk, there will be some more positive news in this dispute. But thank you again so much for your time today.
2: No, absolutely. Thank you.
0: Right now, we are talking a little bit more about the expansion, the improvements that are being made to Highway 1, specifically through the Fraser Valley. You might recall earlier this week, we were talking about this because several chambers of commerce representing Fraser Valley businesses, this includes the Abbotsford Chamber, the Langley Township, City Chambers, the Mission Chamber, and Chilliwack, have come together saying they would like to see an expedited completion of the Highway 1 expansion project, saying that that is needed to bring better transportation capacity to the region. And this was just part of what Corey Redekop had to say. He is the CEO of the Greater Langley Chamber of Commerce. There's the
3: plans underway now for what's going to happen from 264th all the way through to Abbotsford and into that Highway 11 connection with Mission. Um, and then they're starting to plan for the next piece of the Chilliwack. And what we're saying is is that's great, but we, we need these, these expansion plans are critical, uh, but they can't come soon enough. So we want to see the province speed up if there's pre- free loading that has to be done. There's design work, planning, procurement. Anything that we can kind of get done and off the table, so that when we actually can hit uh, hit rubber hit road on this, we can get it done sooner, um, is better because uh, our members, the business community, your listeners, everybody knows Highway One is, is grinds to a grinds to a halt for much of the much of the day, and it's really holding back the growth and the potential of the whole Fraser Valley region.
0: Well, joining me now is Dan Coulter, Minister of State for Infrastructure and Transit. Dan Coulter, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Corey Redekop, you just heard Corey Redekop, CEO of the Greater Langley Chamber of Commerce. Uh, he certainly was echoing what the other chambers have put in writing in this letter. How do you respond to that plea saying people are stuck in gridlock and this project needs to be expedited?
4: I mean, you know, I agree with the regional Um, Chambers of Commerce about um, the improvement of the Highway 1 corridor. I myself, I'm actually an MLA uh, for Chilliwack and I myself, I used to travel to Vancouver for work and I think I worked it out one time. I used to spend about three, seven days a year in my car as well as I talk to business owners all the time out here in Chilliwack and um, I know they're having trouble um, getting their goods uh, moved in an efficient fashion um, throughout the valley and that's why we we are doing the doing the work so we are doing it in four phases so phase uh first or phase one which is goes to two sixteenth, is complete we're now working on phase uh two which goes from two sixteenth to 264th i know a lot of people will have noticed the glover um overpass is being uh, built up thankfully so it won't be hit by height vehicles and then um three we have 3a and 3b so 3a will be from 264th to um mount lehman we're already putting out the tenders for uh the uh, advanced works on that piece um and then 3b from which goes from mount lehman to highway 11 or the the sumas prairie uh we'll be putting out tenders for advanced works um on that piece um by the end of the year and so that you know that advanced works will include median soil removal and tree clearing, as well as uh, pre-loading, which is what Corey Redicop was talking about there.
0: And uh, I think people understand it is a huge project. It is a very lengthy piece of infrastructure. But uh, as you mentioned, too, you know what it's like to be stuck in gridlock and be stuck on that highway every day. This has been happening for years. Why is it taking so long to get these improvements made?
4: I mean, you know it, it, like you like you said it's a lot of work we've we've committed to doing the work and we're going to get the work done um we're not just putting you know it's not just as easy as sticking a lane on the highway we're doing more improvements than that we're obviously raising um overpasses so that trucks don't strike them over high over high loads don't strike them um you know um, I've seen the renderings for the section through Abbotsford, and, and we're adding, you know, on the shoulder bus lanes. We have uh, climbing lanes for trucks when they're going through uphills. Um, obviously, the HOV lane, and then we'll also have a parallel uh, multi-use pathway. So, folks who uh, want to, uh, you know, cycle or walk or whatever, will be able to do that as well. And so, it's not just as easy as just sticking a lane. On the highway, we're doing a lot more work than that. This this infrastructure is going to last us a long time, and so we, uh, you know, we want to make it so that it does last a long time.
0: When we talked to uh, Corey Redekop earlier this week, a caller uh, called in and said that he had heard or it was his understanding that there had been some kind of a disagreement or something had happened that one of the contractors had stopped working and that that portion of the work wasn't being done. Have there been any work stoppages? Not, Not as far as I know, no. So as far as the work that's going on now, it's, it's on schedule and then what's proposed, what was planned, is still going ahead?
4: Yes, as far as I know.
0: Uh, there's a public review or a public comment to portion as well uh, on those upgrades uh, that I uh, understand the, this part is going on until September 15th. What else do you need public comments on if, like you said, these different sections, those different upgrades have already been decided and tenders are being put out?
4: Well, you know, not the entire. I mean, we're putting out tenders for pre-works right now on those sections of Highway. Um, so but we do want public uh, comment and consultation on what the plans are to do with the uh, to do with those sections of course um, you know i think it's very important that the you know we're, we're spending a lot of money on this infrastructure i think it's very important that the people who use it um, you know find it useful and get to see you know get their input into exactly what this will look like
0: right but but I mean I would imagine that there will be a lot of people that want to weigh in on this that want to join this conversation but I mean you know what people want people don't want to be stuck in gridlock they don't want to be stuck on the highway they want to be able to get to where they're going they want exits that are more convenient or more uh, uh, that there are more exits than say going 50 kilometers before another exit so, I mean I mean you must know on some level that there are there are the obvious things that will bring bring huge improvements to not only residents but also businesses.
4: Yeah, and I'll, maybe, maybe I'll just stop there and just tell you that the pu- public consultation isn't like slowing work or we're not, and, and it isn't about um, stopping work until we have this consultation through. I mean, we are doing all the pre-works on those sections that we're consulting on. So, you know, we're doing the pre-loading as, as Mr. Brettikop, um talked about. We're doing the median soil removal, uh, tree clearing, um, there'll be some property acquisition that will need to happen. Um, a whole number of things that we're that we're going to be um, going to be doing um, as pre-works on that section of road.
0: and and when you say property acquisition, is is that homes or properties that are close to the highway?
4: Um, i'm I'm not sure all the pieces that need to be acquired. But uh, there will be some, um, definitely some requirement to do that. Always is when you uh, when you uh, widen a road.
0: You mentioned the adjacent lane for walking uh, for people on bikes if they're if they're choosing to get along or to, to use those modes of transportation. Uh, it did come up as well when chatting with Corey Redekop, uh, transit, and that people in that part of the province, if you're if you're living in Abbotsford and working in Chilliwack or vice versa, it is difficult to get anywhere if you don't drive. Will this also have a transit plan involved in it?
4: absolutely so we'll have a half lane um on the outside so it's like a bus on shoulder lane for rapid bus um you know it's it like i said before it's not just about sticking an hov lane on on the highway i mean we're we're giving people other options as well you know with the multi-use pathway and and then the bus on shoulder lane so that people can take rapid bus we know um a lot of the. Use of the highway is regional, so it's either in between Chilliwack and Abbotsford or Abbotsford and Langley and back and forth. And so, um, you know, we want to be able to provide the option for people to use um, transit um, when they can. And um, I know a lot of people that would love to be able to get out of their cars and be able to hop on a bus to go to Langley or, or Abbotsford.
0: And uh, just one other question about the timeline, because this also did come up earlier. And and again, as you know, it has been like this for years, that it is difficult to get to anywhere in a timely fashion. People called in saying they've changed their plans because it is such gridlock on that highway at all times of day. Do you think it's getting the, the priority? It's getting the attention that it deserves? I think the only other piece of infrastructure I can think of where I've seen or heard such frustration from people is perhaps the... The George Massey tunnel. I mean, here we have the Broadway subway going ahead, we have other projects going ahead. And and like you said, the, there's tenders out, yes, this is happening, but it just doesn't seem to be happening all that quickly.
4: I mean, I think you're gonna be really surprised um at, you know after pre-works are in, and I, I think you'd be very surprised at how quickly things between 216th and 264th will move or how quickly you know, you'll be able to notice them change, right? So there's a lot of work that you can't necessarily see a huge uh, change with, and, and that's what the preworks and stuff. Although you do see definitely, you will see construction action, um, but you'll, you know, just just the Glover overpass um, being raised. That that's a huge change. Like so, the, you'll start notice, noticing. Like it'll happen faster as you notice it, um, but you know, I. I all I can say is that we've committed to doing this work, and we're going We're going to do it. We're going, you know, uh, pretty fast, given that we're getting all these uh, different actions done and doing this uh, pre-works and stuff as, as fast as we can.
0: So with the overpasses being raised, though, is that the project changing to respond to so many trucks hitting overpasses? And has that changed the project then in that, I would imagine, it would add costs, or has it slowed down other parts that, that you now have to raise these overpasses?
4: Well, I, it hasn't slowed slowed down other parts. Um, as we built the highway, um, you'll notice even before 260, um, you have to upgrade overpasses or in exchanges and stuff to be able to bring them up to a modern standard as you're building a modern road, right?
0: Right, but is that in response to all of the trucks hitting the overpasses or was that part of the project anyway?
4: I think that's part of the project anyway.
0: And when will we see? When you you say things will get become a lot faster, people will start seeing those improvements and seeing change on the highway. When do you think they will see, uh, say that those improvements to two sixty fourth?
4: Well, you'll you'll soon see the Glover Overpass being built. You'll see that um, there's a just past if you're heading east, just past Glover, the Glover Overpass. There's a train overpass, a CP Rail uh, overpass. You'll see that being um, modernized and improved, and then you'll see um, them to start to work on an interchange at 232nd Street.
0: All right, Dan Coulter, we'll leave it there for today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us.
4: Okay, thank you.
0: As you've been hearing, and if you've seen the images, pure devastation in parts of Maui because of wildfires. And as you just heard there, at this point, we know at least 36 people have lost their lives. More than 11,000 people have been placed under an evacuation order, and it has been declared a state of emergency. Well, joining me now to talk more about what it was like being there when these wildfires were burning, uh, most uh, just, uh, just the. Uh, in these last 24, 48 hours, is Jason Fisher. Jason, thank you for taking some time to talk to us today.
3: Oh, hang on one second. I can.
0: There you are. I can hear you now.
3: There we go. I'm going to take you off of the uh, car phone.
0: All right. Uh, Jason, thank you for doing this. I understand you've just returned back from Maui. So can you tell us what it was like?
3: Uh, You know, it's... um the the amount of uh when when you're driving and you see the winds and the power lines down and you, and you don't quite you, you just look at it and go wow that that looks you know if that looks bad they're gonna have to replace that and you don't quite connect it through until you're until you're in front of a, a police rolling roadblock that's turning everyone around and you see the flames in front of you and the smoke beside you because it's coming up the hill it, it's um it's it's quite uh, it's fast and it's it's quite sobering and, and 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 you you start to get a little scared you you're aware of how how bad it is uh at that point
0: I understand too and uh, just what you've gone through and what your family has gone through in the past few days there was actually a fire at your townhouse complex here in BC uh, you yeah. you then left you had already had this trip planned to Maui and when you got to Maui though it sounds like there wasn't a whole lot of information or a lot of clear communication
3: No there re- there really isn't it's um I don't I don't know what what the point when you get there and you realize that all of the info is being shared by facebook on on maui has got a a, a website uh, or a facebook page called maui 24 7 which is what the police send you to which is which is fine i guess but a, a whole bunch of locals either didn't have their phones or had lost cell service so you're getting no communication from anybody including the red cross at the, at the two shelters we were sent to they they knew they knew nothing um and and if you're relying on facebook for your info on on what roads are closed um you're kind of you realize that you're really uh, you're almost by yourself you you're you're trying to figure out stuff that you really shouldn't be trying to figure out It, it it should have been there for you um uh and at some point you know you you end up just following lines of people that are clearly transferring from one shelter to the next. And then at at one point we missed our turn to get to the the high school shelter. Um, There's no markings. There's nobody out directing traffic. Uh, It's, um, uh, I don't know what to say. It's something else.
0: Hmm. Uh, so when you landed then and you uh, you got to Maui and you mentioned that you went to two different shelters, uh, I understand too. so you were you were going in one direction, and then were you told, no, you can't go this way, uh, you, yeah. you have to turn around and then, and then I understand maybe you, that you took the long way around the island and, and getting to mm-hmm. another shelter I got,
3: turned around, yep. got turned around, tried to go the long way, thinking, well, no problem, we'll just go the back way. Um, and that was, that was shut off by the police as well. And, and, and at that point, he said, just check Maui 24 7. That's all I can tell you. Um, you know, so you're, you're relying on Google Maps to tell you how long the roads are going and looking for this red bar on, the, on your path that lets that you figure out that that's letting you know that they're, they're closed there. Um, so you don't try it again um but other than that there's there's nothing telling you don't get on the road and and go try it
0: right and was, and what happened when you got, got to the shelters
3: um the the first shelter there's there's no cots uh at the first one at all uh the red cross girl was there they're all very nice um but it's it's you realize this this is thrown together really quite quickly not a lot of info um the police finally showed up with a with a pickup truck filled with bottled water um, and then and then uh, there's nowhere to sleep, so um, I have the, the, the family in the car sleeping, and I essentially fell asleep on the grass. Um, and then you, you kind of wake up and realize that the parking lot's half empty, and everybody's leaving. Um, there's no loudspeaker telling you, hey, if you're asleep in your car, start it up. We're changing locations because there's a fire coming. Um, so if you weren't aware, you kind of, and once we figured it out and and off we went, we followed everybody to the other, to the high school location um, closer to the airport. That was set up a bit better um, for sure. And and they had food coming in um, from what looked like the local Safeway, uh, which was good. The only, the, the, and again, the part that kind of strikes you when you're in the middle of it is a few things you see how, how everybody's quite caring. There's nobody hoarding food. There's nobody hoarding water. People are taking just what they need, um, which is quite something else to watch. (laughs) But then you look at the food that they've sent and it's all of, it's all of Safeway's day olds. Um, You know, everything had 50% off stickers on it. The feminine hygiene products had 50% off stickers on it. And, and you're, you're kind of like, you know, if, if, Playtex knew that you were sending, you know, you were out of feminine hygiene products. They would just say, just send cases. So it, it just, uh, the communication, I think, on, on their end seemed to be I don't know, stuttered, half ha- you know, haphazard. It just they, when you see the food and, and there was some stuff that was new and the bunch of the fruit, wa- fruit wasn't new, um, you know, and you kind of realize that you're just, you're picking, you're taking just what you need.
0: Right. And leaving I mean, the rest for other people. Was that likely though, because this happened so fast and suddenly they were dealing with a town that was destroyed and people literally entirely,
3: Yes, for jump, sure.
0: Yeah, jumping into the ocean and try, and trying to survive this this disaster.
3: Yep. No, for sure. It's it's like I said, there's there's parts of it you look at and go, Okay, that could have done you know, been done better. The other part the the it did strike me, it wasn't like I expected it to be like COVID when I was walking to the gym where people are hoarding toilet paper and water and you know we all remember the scenes and it wasn't like that people were opening up cases of water taking two or three
0: hm well that that is good to hear uh, how were you able then did, did they tell you go to the airport or uh, get out of no, here how did we you slept in the,
3: we slept in the car there and we were constantly checking the google maps um by the morning, by about 5 a.m. or 4 a.m., we had kind of made the call to ourselves that this is this is unworkable because you start seeing the, the the news kind of coming in, trickling in. Um, we contacted our our VRBO host um, uh, Bob from Home Away, and and he he issued a full refund um, for it because clearly we couldn't get there, and he just canceled everything. Um, And then we started we started looking at flights um to get out of there or hotel rooms to stay that even that night just to get a hotel room and the the um the hotel rooms of course there's not that many and they're booked already and they were booking up more and the and then you you realize that the algorithm for the hotel rooms is kicking in and the prices are climbing um and it's becoming a, 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 who can pay more for the hotel room is who's going to get it. Um, to the point, we ended up going to one of the Marriott's, the Waldorf, um, just to see if they had a room or a place to stay uh, before we hit the the shelter. Uh, and the girl there told me that there was a, a, a boutique high-end hotel just down the street, and they were selling rooms for $12,000 a night. Hmm.
0: Well, Jason, I'm glad that you were able. Uh, you and your family were able to get out of there and to safely fly back home. And thank you for joining us for telling us how this unfolded for you. I appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks, Joe.